Genesis chapter 7 is the sermon text today. We'll be considering the whole chapter. Genesis 7. The New Testament reading will be 2 Peter 2, 1 through 10. Genesis 7, 2 Peter 2, 1 through 10. Hear now God's most holy word. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah had, and his sons and his wife and his uh, sons' wives with him went into the ark and to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Let's go now to 2 Peter chapter 2 and consider verses 1 through 10. 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse 1. There we read, But false prophets also arose among them, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. 
and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority." So far, the reading of God's holy word, our prayer is that the Lord would help us now uh, to understand God's word and to put it to application to our lives. In the previous passage, we encountered God's call to Noah to build an ark. His warning to Noah concerning the coming watery judgment given the widespread corruption on earth. And also His promise to to save Noah, his family, and the animals, should he be faithful to build the ark and to enter into it. And finally, we also witnessed his promise to Noah, that he would establish his covenant with him. Everything communicated in that preceding chapter was in preparation for the coming flood and the salvation that Noah and his family would experience in the ark. It was all in preparation for uh, that great event and looking forward to it. But in the passage that is before us today, here in Genesis chapter 7, two things are described. One, the entry of Noah, his family and the animals into the ark. And two, the arrival of the great and worldwide flood. Uh, These two things, Noah's entry into the ark and the arrival of the flood, are described over and over again in this passage, Genesis chapter 7. And they're considered from different vantage points and with increasing detail as we progress through the text. And so let us consider this text in three parts. Uh, First of all, verses 1 through 5. In verse 1 we read, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation." Previously, God spoke to Noah saying, build an ark. Now God speaks to Noah saying, the time has come for you to go into the ark, you and your household. The uh, previous passage revealed the instructions, warnings, and promises given to Noah. This one describes the event of the flood itself. The time has now come for Noah to go and to enter the ark. Notice that the name for God is again Yahweh here in uh, Genesis 7.1. It's translated for us with the word Lord, all in capitals. And so remember God's promise to Noah to establish a covenant with him in the previous text. Noah was obedient to God as he believed upon these promises. It is clear that Noah knew God to be the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And so God is again called Yahweh, for that is what this name emphasizes. God is a uh, covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And again, we find this emphasis in verse 1 of chapter 7, that Noah was righteous before God in his generation. Noah was made righteous by the grace of God through faith alone. But he also lived a righteous and holy life. He was obedient to the commands of God. 
And this should be true of, of all who name the name of Christ. Having been made holy, we ought to live holy. Having been clothed in Christ's righteousness, we ought to pursue righteousness in all that we think, say, and do. In fact, to claim uh, to belong to God, uh, to claim to have faith in God, and to go on living in sin is a contradiction. It's an act of hypocrisy. Christ Himself said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What is Christ saying here? That just to say that you belong to God does not mean anything. But what matters is true faith in Christ, which is characterized by an obedient life, if we truly belong to the Father by His grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, then we will be found doing the Father's will like Noah. He was a righteous man, an obedient man in his generation. Uh, With Noah, there was no contradiction. Noah found grace in God's sight. Noah received the righteousness of Christ by faith alone. That is what Hebrews 11.7 reveals. And Noah lived a righteous and holy life, though he was surrounded by wickedness. No one was obedient on planet earth. Um, The earth was filled with corruption, but Noah was unique. Noah was set apart as holy unto the Lord. Not only was Noah commanded to enter the ark, but also his household. For through the sons of Noah and their wives, the earth would eventually be repopulated. That is where the narrative of Genesis will go. And so not only was Noah saved on the ark, but there were also seven others with him, we learn. His wife and then his three sons and their uh, three wives. Uh, We will see that the earth will eventually be repopulated by this clan, by this family. And through one of his sons, namely the son Shem, that is his name, uh, the Israelites would eventually come. And through the Israelites, through the Jewish or Hebrew people, the Christ would eventually come. And so we see that Noah and his family were preserved so that the promise of Genesis 3.15 concerning the eventual arrival of a victorious Savior might be fulfilled. Uh, that is what this narrative is ultimately about, the preservation not only of Noah and of his family, but of that righteous line, that promised seed of the woman who would come and would stomp upon the head of the serpent to bring redemption to God's people. In verses 2 and 3, we see that Noah was also commanded to take the animals into the ark with him. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. We, we already knew that Noah was to take a pair of every kind of animal into the ark with him. It's one of the reasons he was to construct such a large vessel. I suppose if that vessel were only for he and his family, it could have been much smaller. But he constructs this very large vessel, knowing that every kind of creature will be brought into it so that the animal life would also be preserved after the floodwaters receded. But here we learn something new, more detail is given. And and by the way, this is the pattern we find in the book of Genesis. A fact or truth might be stated in one place, and then a little bit later more detail is given to us. And indeed, we have more detail here. Uh, We learn that uh, Noah was more specifically told to bring two of every sort into the ark, but more specifically, he was to bring seven of every sort clean animal. There are actually differences of opinion as as to if this phrase should be rendered seven or seven pairs. 
of every clean animal, but only one pair of every unclean animal. The reference here to animals that are clean and animals that are unclean is very fascinating, I think. And I don't think it should be ignored either. It it might be tempting just to move on from it quickly, uh, thinking, well, it's a little detail to the text that we do not need to consider much. But, But animals are called here clean and unclean, and I think this is very interesting. Uh, clean and unclean does not mean dirty and less dirty, by the way. He did not say to Noah, look out at the animal kingdom, and the ones that are filthy, you know, take this many, and the ones that are, have better hygiene, uh, t- t- take, take this many. That is not the point, but rather clean and unclean has to do with ceremonial purity. And if you know the scriptures well, you know that in the law of Moses, a distinction is made between things that are clean and unclean. You can read about it for yourself uh, in the book of Leviticus in particular, and particularly Leviticus chapter 11. That book is filled uh, with the language of clean and unclean or not clean. That distinction between clean and unclean was made in the days of Moses and under the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, There we learn clearly that there are clean and unclean animals for the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people who lived under the old Mosaic covenant were permitted to eat and sacrifice only certain kinds of animals, animals designated by God as clean, but the animals designated as unclean were to be avoided by them. They were not to be eaten by them or used as sacrifices in the worship of God. The people under the old Mosaic covenant, remember, were a holy people. They were set apart and made distinct from all the nations, so that God might bring about His purposes through them. Above all, Israel was set apart so that through them the Christ would eventually come. They were a holy people brought by God into a holy realm, a holy land, being led by a holy representative, namely Moses and after him Aaron. And so laws were given to Israel which marked them off as distinct from the nations. The nations did not sin when they ate all kinds of animals, but the Israelites were to eat only those things that God designated as clean. That which God designated as unclean were to be avoided by them, both in their diet and in the worship of God. Now, it should be clear to all who know the Scriptures that these animals are not clean and unclean inherently so or by nature. In other words, some animals were called clean and others were called unclean, not because they are inherently corrupt or dirty, but because God designated them as such for His people and for a time. Now, to prove this point, I need only to draw your attention to two passages of Scripture. Bear with me as I develop this, because I think it's an important part of this narrative, actually. Acts 10 and Genesis 9, 1 through 3. In Acts 10, first of all, we find a long narrative regarding Peter, the apostle of Christ. He was a Jewish man. He was a Hebrew, an Israelite. And he was brought up under the old Mosaic covenant, as you know. And after Christ had risen from the grave and ascended, after that event, Peter saw a vision that disturbed him greatly, a great deal of Space is devoted to the story in the book of Acts. He saw a vision and a sheet was descending from heaven with all kinds of animals on it. And Peter heard a voice from heaven saying, Rise, Peter, 
Kill and eat. That is Acts 10, 13. And Peter's response to this voice makes it clear that the animals that he saw on the sheet were animals designated as unclean under the old covenant. For he replied in this way, saying, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I won't do it. I can't do it. I can't bring myself to do it, was Peter's response. But then the voice from heaven replied to Peter, saying, What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So Peter, having been raised a Jew, under the old Mosaic covenant, had always obeyed the dietary laws of the Mosaic covenant, and rightly so. This distinction between clean and unclean was binding upon him. But when Christ inaugurated the new covenant by his shed blood, something changed. No longer were these common and unclean animals to be considered common and unclean, for they for those dietary laws of the Old Covenant had been abrogated or taken away. The people of God under the New Covenant, that is, Jews and Gentiles alike who are in Christ, by faith in Christ, they are free to eat all kinds of animals. And this is why I say that these unclean animals were not unclean by nature, or inherently so, but only by the designation of God. And so just as God had the right to set one of the trees of the garden apart as forbidden, so too God has the right to declare some things clean and others unclean for His people and for His purposes. I think we should also look to Genesis 9 verses 1 through 3 before returning to our text today, uh, to, to interpret our text today. For there we see that the distinction between clean and unclean that was imposed upon Noah prior to the flood, and as he entered into the ark, it was also taken away from him after the flood, at least as it pertains to the dietary restrictions. Look at Genesis 9.1. This takes us to a time after the flood waters had receded. And there we read, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Now listen to this. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Everything that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Genesis 9, 1-3. And so by these words, it is clear that Noah and his sons were permitted to eat every kind of animal after they disembarked from the ark. The distinction between clean and unclean that was communicated to them prior to the flood and as they were entering the ark was evidently removed from them after the flood flood waters subsided. And again, this is why I say that The unclean animals are not unclean by nature or inherently so, but only by the designation of God. God has the authority to call something unclean or forbidden for a time and for a purpose and then to lift or remove that particular designation when He chooses. So I hope you can understand why I have said that the designation of things clean and unclean here in Genesis 7 is fascinating and it should not be ignored, we must ask the question, why was the distinction between clean and unclean animals revealed to and imposed upon Noah 
as he prepared to board the ark, only to be, only to be taken away after he and his sons and his daughters, uh, daughters-in-law disembarked from the ark, and not to be imposed again until the giving of the law of Moses. Is, is this not fascinating to you? It's fascinating to me. It seems as if this distinction between clean and unclean was not present in the world prior to the days of Noah and the flood. It was revealed and imposed for a short time, about a year, as they went through this ordeal on the ark. And then as they disembarked, it was taken away again. You're permitted to eat all kinds of animals. But then in the days of Moses, the the distinction between unclean and unclean is revealed and imposed upon the people of Israel again. Why, Why is this happening? If you were an Israelite, receiving the book of Genesis from the hand of Moses for the first time, wouldn't you ask that question? Because there you are, living under these dietary restrictions. Why why given to Noah, and then taken away, and then given to us again as God's chosen people? Amongst commentators, answers to this question abound, and I'm not going to take the time here to overview the various opinions. I'll simply state my view. It is my opinion that the distinction between clean and unclean were revealed to and imposed upon Noah and his family as they went into the ark so that we might see clearly the relationship between Noah and his family and Moses and the people of Israel who would come after them. There is a relationship between the two entities, the two groups. A pattern is being developed here in Scripture and in the history of redemption. And the mention of clean and unclean animals, I think, is intended to help us to see it. God has a plan of salvation for His people, brothers and sisters. And His plan involves bringing a holy people into a holy realm by an obedient federal head. This is what the plan of redemption involves. God has decreed, God has determined to bring a holy people into a holy realm and to do so through an obedient federal head, an obedient leader, an obedient representative of others. Ultimately, this salvation would be accomplished by Christ. You know that. Christ is the obedient federal head who will bring His people, that is to say the church, the elect in all ages, into a holy realm. And what is that holy realm ultimately? It is the new heavens and the new earth. But throughout the history of redemption, this thing... Uh, that is, the bringing of a holy people into a holy realm by an obedient federal head, namely Christ, um, was accomplished on a typological level over and over and over again, pointing forward to the work that Christ would eventually accomplish supremely. In other words, things happened in history that functioned as a picture or a type of the great salvation that Christ would eventually accomplish for us. You understand? Historical events, real events, real salvific events happened that pointed forward to the greater thing that would be accomplished by Christ at the appointed time. Um, I think we're meant to see this here, that Noah and his family were a holy people whom God brought into a holy realm through the representation of an obedient federal head, namely Noah. And the same thing could be said of Israel. God brought a holy people into a holy realm through the obedient federal head, namely in that instance, Moses. Did Noah and his family 
and Moses and the people of Israel whom he led? Did they experience salvation in Christ in those events? We would say no. They experienced a kind of salvation, a type of salvation. It was real salvation. Certainly Noah and his family understood that. They were really being saved from something. But what were they being saved from? Waters of judgment. What were they being saved to? A new creation. Who were they being saved by? Noah, as he was obedient to God. They were being saved by God through Noah. But is this the salvation we have in Christ? No. It's a picture of it. It's a picture of it. What about in the days of Moses? Well, there is Moses, an obedient, faithful, righteous man being used by God to lead a holy people into a holy realm. I hope you can see the similarities here. There's Israel in bondage in Egypt. Moses is sent to redeem them, to lead them out. The people of Egypt are judged, and they chase Israel out as they leave Egypt. And what does God lead Israel through except the waters? By Moses' leadership into the wilderness. And into the wilderness, there they are for a time. But eventually they go into the promised land and they pass again through the waters of the Jordan, you see. Holy people being led into a holy land by an obedient federal head. Uh, This is not the ultimate salvation that would be accomplished by Christ, but it is a picture of it. And I think this mention of things clean and unclean is meant to help us see the connection here Please do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that all who were in Noah's family and all who were in Israel were saved eternally. I don't think that is the case. In fact, it will become clear that not all in Noah's family had the faith of Noah. That will become clear. Certainly not all who were a part of Old Covenant Israel had the faith of Abraham. The New Testament is explicitly clear about this. Also, the Old Testament narrative that not all Israel is Israel. You you understand what's being said there? It was possible to be of Israel Israel, but not belong to God by faith. And neither am I saying that these groups inherited the holy realm, that is the new heavens and new earth. No, they inherited something earthly and typological, something symbolic of the heavenly realm. They inherited something that symbolized the new heavens and the new earth. When the floodwaters subsided, Noah and his family stepped off the ark and they set their feet upon a new creation. It was not the new creation that we will have in Christ Jesus, but it was a new creation which pointed forward to the new creation which Christ would earn. The same could be said of Israel. When they crossed through the waters of the Jordan and came to the other side, they set their feet upon a holy land. It was not the holy land, but a land that pointed forward to the Christ, the one that the Christ would earn, uh, the new heavens and the new earth, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Neither am I claiming that Noah and Moses were the Savior. Don't forget about that Genesis 3.15 promise. I'm going to send someone, the seed of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent. So what is in the people's minds? When will this one come? When will this one come? And I, I wonder if people did not think perhaps Noah is the one. In fact, there are indicators that there were hopes for that. In fact, his father named him what he named him, saying he was going to bring us relief. He's going to bring us relief. But Noah, after he disembarks from the ark, he gets drunk with wine. Does he not? He falls. Did he, uh, did he accomplish a kind of salvation, a type of salvation? Yes. But is he the one? No, he's not the one. 
And Moses, after he leads the, leads the people through the Red Sea and they're parted as he lifts his hands up, he goes into the wilderness and he strikes the rock and he himself is not even allowed to enter into that typological promised land. He's a, a federal head, a representative, a righteous man, but is he the one? No, he's, he's not the one. The, the narratives make clear that these men had imperfections. They were obedient servants of God. They did typify the Christ, but they were not the Christ. The Christ would eventually come through their loins. So a pattern is developing, and I believe the identification of things clean and unclean under the Noahic time period and in the ark and also in the law of Moses is meant to help us see this pattern. God created the heavens and the earth. There was a fall. God determined to show grace and to redeem a people for Himself. Wickedness increased. God poured out His judgment. But He was faithful to bring a holy people into a holy realm by their relationship to an obedient federal head, you see. And the same pattern repeats from the days of Noah onto the days of Moses. This happened in the world that once was prior to the flood and fulfillment to the promises made to Adam and Eve. The line of Seth was preserved. Noah was raised up. Judgment was poured out. But salvation was provided through association with Noah. I mean, think of it. How good it was for these seven others to know Noah and to be associated with him, this righteous man. They were saved by their association with him from the flood waters. A holy people was delivered from judgment and brought into a holy realm by their relationship to an obedient federal head. And this happened again in the days of Moses in fulfillment to the promises made to Abraham. Greater promises, more clear promises will be made to Abraham. I, I hope you know chronology, the chronology of redemptive history. I'm assuming you do. Noah, Abraham, Moses. Um, this happened in the days of Moses in fulfillment to the promises made to Abraham. The line of Isaac was preserved. Moses was raised up. Judgment was poured out upon the Egyptians, but salvation was provided to those associated with Moses. Again, a holy people was delivered from judgment and brought into a holy realm by their relationship to an obedient federal head. I hope that you are able to see that all of this pointed forward to that which would be accomplished supremely through Christ in fulfillment to the promises made to Adam and to Abraham. The line of Seth, Shem, Abraham, David would be preserved until the Christ would come. He himself would endure the judgment of God. God's wrath would be poured out upon him on the cross. He would die, but he would raise again and inherit eternal life, the new heavens and the new earth. But all who are united to him by faith will set their feet down upon the new creation, not a typological or symbolic or earthly one, but the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, which He, our obedient federal head, has earned. And so again, that is why I think there is mention of clean and unclean here. Why did God command that seven of the clean animals be taken onto the ark and only two of the unclean? What's the purpose for it? Well, it becomes clear, doesn't it? Some of the clean animals would have been slaughtered for food. Uh, others would have been offered up to God in worship as the family of Noah disembarked from the ark. In fact, that is what we see. This is what happened immediately after the floodwaters receded. In Genesis 8.20, we see that the first thing Noah did, he built an altar to the Lord. He built an altar to the Lord and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, 
Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. But just notice this. This whole narrative is about the establishment of the worship of the holy God by a holy people in a holy realm. Can you see the picture? Here Noah is chosen. His family is set apart. They are delivered. And they're brought into a, a new creation. The earth is, is renewed and renovated after the floodwaters recede. And what is the very first thing that this holy people does now that they are in this holy and renovated realm? They begin to worship the holy God. They offer sacrifices to Him. And this is why these numbers were designated for uh, Noah to take onto the ark. In verse 4 we simply read, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Again, Noah's obedience to the Word of God is emphasized. Let us now consider verses 6 through 17. We'll move more rapidly through this section. There are three things that I would like for you to notice about this section, verses 6 through 17. One, notice how repetitive this passage is. Really, only two events are described to us in this whole long section. The flooding of the earth and the entrance of Noah and his family into the ark. This section consists of five parts, and these parts alternate back and forth, describing the one thing and then the other, the flooding of the earth and Noah's entry into the ark with, the family and, with his family and the animals. In verse 6, we find a statement regarding the arrival of the flood. Now, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of, flood of waters came upon the earth. And in verses 7 through 9, we find a statement regarding the entrance into the ark. So, the flood is, is here. It has come. And what did Noah and his family do? They went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, and they brought also with them the animals that God had prescribed. In verses 10 through 12, we find another statement regarding the arrival of the flood. You see, we come back to that emphasis. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And then in verses 13 through 16, we find another statement regarding entrance into the ark. On the very same day, Noah and his son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wives, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, etc., etc. And then in verse 17, we find yet another statement regarding the flood. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. This, that the pattern is this, flood, entrance, flood, Entrance flood. And so the text is repetitive. The message that is driven home is that God judged the corrupt earth just as He warned. And God provided salvation to His people just as He promised. And so this theme is repeated again and again and again. God's word is sure. It will certainly come to pass. God will judge as He has said that He would. And He will also be faithful to deliver His people from that judgment, according to His promises. Two, notice how detailed this passage is. There are a lot of details here. How old was Noah when all of this started? 600 years old, we learn. Noah was told that not only will a flood eventually come, but now in seven days the waters of the flood will come. And so in the 600th year of the life of Noah, in fact, even more specifically, in the second month, And even to the day, on the 17th day of the month, 
On that day, the fountains of the great deep burst forth. The flood continued for how long? The, the rains fell and the waters arose for 40 days. And we even learn in verse 20, in, in the next section, that the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits, that is 22 feet. So all the high mountains were even covered by these flood waters, uh, 22 feet high. How, how do we know that? Well, I wonder if that was not the draft of the, uh, is that what you call it? Uh, you know, how far the hole of the ark went down into the waters. The waters came up high enough so that uh, the, the ark never, uh, never bottomed out, you see, with the flood waters. And so I think the text is filled with detail, which suggests that it is a record of real historical events. The dates mentioned in this text are probably to be compared with other dates or dates in God's uh, work of creation or redemption, so as to communicate that the flood was an act of decreation, and recreation. I think that is what all of these specific dates are about. Three, notice the phrase, and the Lord shut him in, in Genesis seven sixteen. And so uh, there is this repetition between the flood came, they entered, the flood came, they entered, the flood came. But there is this one phrase that stands out. This detail is given that it was the Lord himself who shut them in. It's actually a good question. Uh, so here Noah and his family, they get onto the ark and all the animals with them. Who closed the door? Uh, who sealed the door so that the waters would not enter into the ark? Uh, here we are told that the Lord himself did it. And I do love that phrase, the Lord shut him in. Noah and his family entered the ark along with all the animals, clean and unclean. But who shut the door? Who sealed it? It was God who did this. And this does remind us that this salvation was God's work from beginning to end. God called Noah. He sealed Noah. He preserved him throughout the flood. And this He does for us in Christ Jesus. It is His work ultimately from beginning to end, though we must be obedient to Him in all things. Verses 18 through 24 are dramatic and they are graphic, notice. Um, as I read them, I would encourage you to have... All that we have encountered in the book of Genesis thus far in mind. I want you to especially have Genesis chapter 1 in mind, if you can. Do you remember what happened in Genesis chapter 1? Uh, the formation of the heavens and the earth. But think in particular about what Genesis 1 has to say about the condition of the earth prior to God bringing it into form. As I read Genesis 7, 18-24. Notice the dramatic and graphic language. The waters prevailed, we hear. They did not just cover the earth. They prevailed, and they increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died. Now here, listen to the emphasis upon death. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind... Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Notice four things. One, the waters did not only cover the earth, they prevailed, we are told increased greatly and prevailed mightily. And I think this is meant to communicate to us that the judgments of God are truly awesome and great. 
when we think about the judgments of God, be it the typological judgment of sending the floodwaters upon the earth or the final judgment, we should stand in awe of them. We should tremble at the thought of them. The judgments of God are truly awesome and great. Two, notice the emphasis upon the death of all living. All flesh died that moved on the earth, etc., etc. The text is graphic. These were blotted out. And so we are able to see that truly the wages of sin is death, as God warned that it would be. The wages of sin is death. And here we see death being brought about through the judgments of God. Three, notice that the flood event, and here I think is the most important thing to notice. Notice that the flood event took the earth back to its condition as described in Genesis 1-2. The flood event took the earth back to its condition as described in Genesis 1-2. And it was therefore an act of decreation. In Genesis 1-2 we read, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And after this, God began to form and fashion the earth into its present condition. In Genesis 7:18, we read, The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. In the Hebrew, the terminology is the same. I think we are to make this connection. The flood was an act of decreation. And the argument that will be made in future sermons is that the receding of the floodwaters and the repopulation of the earth by Noah and his family and the animals was an act of recreation. It was a kind of a fresh start, if you will, as God covered the earth with floodwaters and then caused them to recede. Four, notice the concluding remarks which emphasize the salvation of the Lord. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed mightily on the earth 150 days. Let me say just one thing by way of conclusion, brothers and sisters. Uh, This narrative was long, and um, you're going to have to labor to make application from it yourselves to some extent. But I would like to conclude by making one point of application, and it is the same application that Peter made in his epistle, which we read from at the introduction to the sermon. Uh, Peter made a point to to his audience to say, Do not grow discouraged. Do not grow weary as you sojourn in this world, this world filled with corruption, this world filled with wickedness. Do not be discouraged even as you who belong to God through faith in Christ Jesus are persecuted and as you suffer. Do not be discouraged because God is able to both preserve His people in the midst of difficulty and darkness while at the same time keeping the wicked until the day of judgment. He is able to do both things, and how do we know it? Because he has proven that he's able to do it time and time again throughout the history of redemption. And so Peter makes mention of the event with Sodom and Gomorrah, doesn't he? He makes mention of a number of events, but as it pertains to our text today, here is what Peter said, For if God did not spare the ancient world, that is to say the world that once was, the world prior to the flood, notice the sharp distinction that is made between the world that once was, the ancient world, and the present world in which we live. For God did not spare the ancient world, but what did He do? He preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when He brought 
a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If God was able to do that, Peter reasons, then, here is the conclusion, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious one. So here, Peter is bringing application and encouragement to the people of God under the new covenant who are living in this present world. He's saying, do not grow discouraged, friends. Do not lose hope. Cling to Christ. Stick together as God's people and trust ultimately in God that He is able to bring you safely home, even through this wicked and perverse generation. Friends, the story of the flood should cause those who are in Christ to take courage and to remain in Him faithful to the end, living always in obedience to His commandments in this world, even if it is so difficult. And the story of the flood should also cause the wicked to tremble and to run to Christ for refuge. For in Noah and in the floodwaters we see a picture and a type of both the judgment of God that will come at the end of time and also the salvation that has been provided for us in Christ Jesus. We must take refuge in Him and be united to Him, our faithful and obedient federal head, by faith alone. Let us bow for prayer. Father, I do pray for those who have heard these words that your Spirit would work upon them. It is possible that even now there are some who have not yet trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It is possible that there are some even in this room who for a long time have gone on trusting in themselves, in their own righteousness. Lord, I pray that they would put all of that to death with the help of your Holy Spirit, that you would cause them to see their sin and the inability that they have to make themselves right before you. I pray that they would run to Christ for refuge, that they would board that ark, as it were, and be sealed in it by you, so that they might be preserved and brought into the new heavens and new earth. Lord, do that work upon those who do not yet believe, and for those who have professed faith in Christ, we ask, Lord, that you would be faithful to preserve us. May we never abandon Christ or our hope in Him. Have mercy upon us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.